Hi, this is Carrie Brownstein. This is DJ Premier. This is Darren Aronofsky. You got the Rizzo right here. Rose McGowan. Right here. Aisha Tyler. A tribe Called Quest. Fred Armisen. Fritz Paul. Javier Munoz, Seth Meyers. Frankie Cosmos. Flying Lotus. Hi, we're Haim, and you're listening to the Talk House Podcast. Ow! What's up? What is up? It's your man, Elia Einhorn. Welcome back to the Talk House Podcast. Joining me from the City of Wind. It's Josh Modell, and I am also your man. (laughs) Hey, hey, executive editor on the line. We have a very cool pairing on this week's show. James Mercer of The Shins and Broken Bells in conversation with Bruce Hornsby. That's right, the one and only Bruce Hornsby. Probably most people would know him from his huge 80s hits, particularly The Way It Is. But he's had an incredible career. He worked with The Grateful Dead. He's collaborated with a ton of really interesting people, including James Mercer of The Shins. Yeah, Bruce Hornsby really is an inveterate collaborator. I definitely came to his work as a teenager through Grateful Dead bootlegs. You always knew if Bruce Hornsby was with the band, it had a certain sound. But just in the last couple of years, he's worked with everyone from Justin Vernon and Blake Mills to Jack DeJohnette. And for his new LP, Non-Secure Connection, aside from James Mercer, Jamila Woods shows up, Vernon Reed of Living Color, and tons more. Looking back from our vantage point in 2020, Bruce Hornsby has spent four decades in deep musical experimentation. Whether that's his work, as we mentioned, with The Grateful Dead, whether that's his work with his own band, The Range, or writing for literally a half dozen Spike Lee joints, Hornsby is always reinventing himself. And his forthcoming album, Non-Secure Connection, is no different. The latest career turn for Bruce Hornsby, weirdly, was inspired by Justin Vernon of Bon Iver, who had referred to the Bon Iver song Beth Rest as his Bruce Hornsby song, which led to those guys working together on Bruce's record, on a Bon Iver record. And of course, Bruce ended up playing at Justin's Eau Claire Festival. And now he's kind of opened up this whole new world to all these younger collaborators and really interesting stuff. So Josh, I think the gateway drugs these days are either Justin Vernon or Aaron Dessner. For for huge stars into the indie world. Yeah, I mean, not that Bruce Hornsby needed the cherry on top of his incredibly long career, because it's also not like Hornsby's music has ever left the public eye. He's been sampled on half a dozen huge hip-hop songs, including Tupac's Changes. That's just the way it is. You know, some things will never change. Like people sampling Bruce Hornsby. Another thing that'll never change, James Mercer doing dope shit. And of course, James Mercer is best known as the chief creative force behind The Shins, and he's also half of Broken Bells with producer Danger Mouse. If people know The Shins for one thing, and hopefully they know them for more than one thing, it's for Natalie Portman talking about new slang in the film Garden State. We hear a little bit about it in this talk between Hornsby and Mercer, but it really was sort of a pivot point in The Shins' career. And it was cool to see the band use that exposure as a... springboard into pretty huge mainstream indie acclaim. Yeah, Mercer's catalog, both with The Shins and Broken Bells, is pretty incredible. And as far as we understand, the next thing we're going to get from Mercer is another Broken Bells record. They've dropped a couple singles over the last couple years, hopefully teasing yet another full length. Funny story, Josh. Broken Bells shares a trumpet player and keyboard player in Nate Walcott with my old band, Scotland Yard Gospel Choir. Whoa. Six Degrees of Elia Einhorn. (laughs) Yeah, Nate invited me to see them some years back live, and they're fucking great on stage, man. Yeah, it really has turned into this, like, incredible touring unit. Like, it's a real rock band. 
James Mercer was very psyched to get the call from Bruce Hornsby to collaborate on a track on the latter's new album, Non-Secure Connection, called My Resolve. Let's take a listen. I love that song. I love how their voices kind of blend together. Yeah, man. I'm really psyched to check out the whole album. If you're listening to this podcast on the day it came out, that drops tomorrow, August 14th, 2020. James and Bruce get into a lot in this talk. They take it all the way back to each of their earliest musical moments, right up to this new collaboration. Along the way, we hear great stories about Sir Elton John, who they both know in one way or another. We hear about the influence of Isaac Brock of Modest Mouse on the Shins career, as well as, of course, Zach Braff, and the musical, The Music Man. And speaking of music, I thought it was really interesting how much Hornsby has kept up and how this modern influence on what he's doing is really not that surprising when you kind of take in the totality of his career. The man is an incredible listener, as well as musician. Yeah, he's clearly not phoning it in. Should we roll the tape? Yeah, let's hear it. Hey, James, how's your family? Uh, are you still a school teacher in your home? Yeah. Oh, my God, which is actually one of the most difficult jobs. Are you a good teacher, James? I don't think I, I, don't think I would be. I've gotten better. Um, okay. uh, it's patience and allowing them to figure something out, even though you might know the shortcut. Yeah. Let them yes, kind of right. discover it. But that's hard yeah. to do um, if you're not in the mood, you know. If you're getting impatient and you want to go, maybe work on a song or whatever else you've got going on. So so anyways, I have to ask you, because I'm such a fan, I'd love to hear, I think everyone has an interesting origin story. When did you start playing? I would mess around with writing lyrics for existing songs, you know, like... Oh, so a, interesting. Like you, would take, you would take I Am A Rock by Simon and Garfunkel or, yeah. or, or whatever the song. You'd take a, a Sex Pistols song and rewrite mm-hmm. it lyrically. That's amazing. Sure. Yeah, I would just sit and just write something that I was vibing on Oh, and which was just wistful. You know, I, I would have those crushes and things. And so, okay. it, you know, I remember I had a song called Carrie that was written to one of the songs uh, from Greece. (laughs) Yeah, just weird stuff like that. But you had your young man's emotional life that you could uh, mine (laughs) by doing this, and so you didn't have to play music. You just sang along to John Travolta, I guess. Yeah, exactly, yeah. And it was a cousin of mine, Carrie, who was the first girl I ever kissed. (laughs) She was like a couple years older than me, and she would literally take me out to the tall grass, and she had a friend, and they would... I don't know what the game was, but they would kiss me. <laughs> well, how old were you then? I would have been about seven and eight when. Oh God! Yeah, yeah. I thought you were going to say fifth, sixth grade, seven or eight. Yeah, it made me infatuated with her. You know, uh-huh. and okay. that's like why I wrote the song Carrie. Okay, was it about <laughs> about a, a taboo love? I I didn't even know anything. I think she was like a oh. third cousin or something. <laughs> It is pretty creepy, though, when you get into it, I guess. But, you know. So that's not what caring is creepy is about. <laughs> no, I guess not. no. <laughs> man, I love, I, I, your words, man, they're some of them that just, just, just crush me. And one of them's from caring is creepy, the, oh, the bit you have about, it's a luscious mix of words and tricks that let <laughs> us bet when you know we should fold. Oh, <laughs> yeah, thank you. <laughs> you like that one. That's cool. 
I, I well, I like a bunch of them, nice. uh, but that one was is something just. And when you used the word creepy, I couldn't help but go to your song, which oh, has the yeah. The, yeah. the wild title "Carrying Is Creepy," which I love. Uh, okay, so so you didn't start then playing, but you were. Mm-hmm. You were a poet in a sense early. I was trying, I guess. I mean, I didn't, I don't know what the inspiration was. I don't know why I thought I, I just enjoyed it, you know, and I had been messing around with it for a little while. So I, yeah, I don't, I don't know what the goal was really, but I, I really loved, I loved to sing. I would make up melodies and sing these wistful songs for my mom. And she was, (laughs) she was very encouraging. She was like, that's just a beautiful song, Jamie. But these were songs uh, to, to the tune of something else. In those cases, I would just make up a melody, but I didn't play an instrument. I would just start singing, you know, which my six-year-old does this all the time. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. But were you a reader? Were you a, a voracious reader of poetry, maybe, or, or huh. literature in, in, say in middle school or, or high school? I don't think at that age. In fact, um, I had gone to my early elementary school years were in Alabama. And when I got to Utah, oh, the school, the school oh. system was really good. Okay. And my teacher held me after class every day and actually gave me reading lessons because I was behind to the, compared oh, to the other kids. Mm-hmm. So I, I wasn't this voracious reader. I started reading in sixth grade. I remember reading um, Where the Red Fern Grows and loved it and cried, you know, and just <laughs> stuff. What about you? Well, I really was late to all to frankly, all of this, I, I didn't start playing the piano. Well, maybe you didn't start playing guitar until around this time, but I didn't start playing the piano until I was a junior in high school, seven, age Whoa, 17. Damn. Yeah, re- really late. I took a year of piano lessons from age seven to eight, and, and the family lore has it that I asked to take it. It wasn't anything that was pushed on me. I asked to take it, but then I lived in a, a really fun neighborhood with a lot of kids our age, similar within two or three years of each other. And all the kids were always out playing games, every sport in its season, football, basketball, baseball. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that looked, that was always fun. And when I was in pr- having to practice my, uh, you know, p- playing the Volga Boatman from Teaching Little Fingers to Play, which was the first book that they gave me as a, as a kid, I was, of course, just going, oh, the horror, you know, why, why am I here? I want to be out there with these guys. So I quit I quit after about a year. I quit the piano, asked to stop, and uh, my parents were fine with it. But um, but music was always in my family. My, my grandfather was a musician for a living in Richmond, Virginia. Uh, Man. So it was always around, and my parents were really into it. My mom played a little piano. My dad played sax. He played sax in his older brother's swing band called Sherwood Hornsby and the Rhythm Boys. And they cool. would play at the local like nightclubs and bars and stuff. No campgrounds. Yeah, oh, place called cool. place How called fun. Toppings Court. They would play dances at campgrounds. Now this is really a long time ago. So yeah. my, my my dad was born in 1920. So oh man. So there was that. But it was always around. They would sometimes even have their friends over to play a little music. 
mm-hmm. and play a little sort of swing. Benny Goodman, Glenn Miller was their groove. That's kind of hard to pull off, I guess, just as a small combo. Yeah, they, they usually get about eight or ten guys over there. Oh, a, lot okay. of, a, a lot of my dad's friends, my dad played sax, and a lot of his friends, mm-hmm. uh, he, he knew a lot of horn players. So mm-hmm, they, sure. they would get them together, and so we were the little kids just hanging around the periphery, checking this out as, as little kids. Well, I can see why they did well in Richmond, Virginia, if they were they were really pulling out a real professional act like that. That must have been fantastic. So anyway, that was my start. I So I just stayed with the, the jockey scene, the sports scene for a mm-hmm. long time. But I always played, I had little bands. I played guitar, just like most kids. I was of a certain age. I was nine, nine or 10 when the Beatles played on Ed Sullivan. And we saw that. Really, you, you were sitting in front of the TV? We were sitting in front of the TV yeah. live, and uh, then we'd see the subsequent groups. The Stones played, the Dave Clark mm-hmm. Five played, on and on. But the Beatles were the initial inspiration mm-hmm. for most everybody who then wanted to get a Vox guitar and learn how to play it. So I was little Brucey with the guitar, writing his own songs. And we so I had a band in sixth grade as a guitar player, my younger <laughs> brother. Cool. <a> jo- <laughs> yeah. So we played little Battle of Bands and, and seventh grade dances and actually pr- and private parties at people's houses, little make-out parties. And Did you struggle at all with the stage fright at that age? No, not really. That came oh. later. That, oh, interesting. That, that came when it seemed like people cared more, when wow. people are actually listening. You know, we're, I'm up there playing Get Off My Cloud, and mm-hmm. the kids are just doing the frug and this twist and whatever, the Watusi, and they, they're not really paying that much attention to us. They're mm-hmm. paying attention to their hoped-for date. <laughs> You're more part of the party. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. One so, of the so, other members, yeah. So, but that, so that was it. I wasn't serious about it. I was more into the sports thing. In 11th grade, I'd kind of given up the guitar, played it a little bit. But my older brother then got sent, after the one year at this private school, he was sent to a prep school in Connecticut. So around here in, in on the Virginia Peninsula... There were two stations you could hear that played music for kids, I guess, uh, the Top 40 station and the Soul station. Mm -hmm. And that was a great broad range stylistically. Back then, the Top 40, you could hear Glenn Campbell and then Wilson Pickett and then, you know, Lulu and Mm. the, the Searchers, the British Invasion. Were there still, like, tenors? Happening, you know, the stuff that was popular in the '50s, sort of classical. Were, were there still, were there still what? The tenors. I just noticed that in the '50s there were kind of classical operatic singers that would have best-selling records and stuff, which I found well, fascinating. What comes to mind for me there is an old group named Jay and the Americans, mm. and they had a song called Caramia, Caramia. Sure. You know, in that in that style that uh, very that, dramatic to which you're referring exactly. Okay, and that, so that came. Maybe you could call the Four Seasons that these were these were, these were mm-hmm. all sort of Long Island, New Jersey, Italian American or Jewish American groups. Love the Four Seasons so much. Incredible, yeah, yeah. incredible vocals and incredible songs. Look, that also existed. There was again a broad palette of, of stylistic colors that were there in, in the uh, top 40 world. And then the soul world was also varied because you had the Muscle Shoals and the, you know, the Wilson Pickets and the mm-hmm. Otis Reddings and Stax Volt 
Isaac Hayes, and then you had, of course, the classic Motown. So mm. those were fairly yeah. disparate stylistically as well. Well, so and then I, James I, Brown too. What well, an exactly right. Outlier. He was sort of his own phenomenon. Yeah, and, right. So that's creating the, a genre all his own. Ex- completely. That's right. I, I'm so glad you brought that up. So it was a, a great range of music. But one thing that was missing was mm. FM underground radio, which came about in the '70s early mm-hmm. 70s. So my brother up in Greenwich, Connecticut, which is an hour train ride from, from the city, he was being turned on to all these groups like, say, Mountain and Cream. And now mm-hmm. Cream had hits, so they were all... They were, or, or, but uh, they started in this sort of FM underground I, world? Well, I don't know. I'm not a historian. I don't really know exactly. Mm-hmm. But, I'm, but just groups that we never heard of, mm-hmm. he would bring these records home and play them for us. And... I know this sounds completely ridiculous, but he was playing me what at the time was a fairly underground record, Elton John. <laughs> that sounds Whoa, ins- yeah. insane. Okay, it was his second American release. Mm-hmm. It was the one Elton John record that didn't have a hit on it, but it was unbelievable. It was basically Elton and Bernie Taupin mm-hmm. being so inspired by Robbie Robertson and the band and basically writing and performing their version of that. I don't know if you know the record Tumbley Connection, but it... It totally holds up, as does its its successor, Mad Men Across the Water. They're both of a piece stylistically and and so beautiful. Uh, and just there's a lot of gravitas in that music to me. Mm. So he, my brother was taking me down the Colonial Parkway. I'm in, say, 10th grade, and he's in college, and he plays me this record. And I was just floored by it. It just moved me so much. And we had a piano in our house, and it made me want to go out and play it. And at the same mm. time, he also turned us on to, this was also rather underground at the time, Joe Cocker and Mad Dogs and the Englishman with the great Leon Russell piano Whoa. playing on okay, it. okay, sure. So those two, they happened to just blow me away. And they mm. were both piano-based records. Uh, obviously, the Cocker records were more R&B, more soul, with all the great horn sections that Leon would use. And Elton was a little more, I don't guess for lack of a better term, folk rock or a, a mm. sort of British version of Americana, British, British yeah. version of the band in those days. Sure. So that made me want to play, and I just jumped into that. So your your first exposure to something that really inspired you was kind of, it was underground stuff. It, it was different. Well, it's, it seemed to be at the time, because, of course, then subsequently Elton had big hits and sure. couldn't have been more sort of top of the mainstream. This show is brought to you by Patreon, who ask, Creators, are you tired of being paid in clicks and likes? Social media and streaming platforms help people find your work, but getting you paid is another story. With Patreon, you can stop rolling the dice of ad revenue and per-stream payouts and grow your creative career through the direct support of the people who care the most, your fans. Since Patreon is built for creators, not advertisers, You'll skip the middleman and develop a sustainable income source by offering a monthly membership to your fans. In turn, they'll get access to exclusive community, premium content, and the chance to become active participants in the work they love. The creative system is broken. So if you're a podcaster, video maker, musician, writer, illustrator, a creative person of any kind, sign up on patreon.com now. That's P-A-T. R-E-O-N dot com and change the way your creativity is valued by building the steady income stream you deserve.
You know, I got a phone call from Elton John one day. <laughs> Is that right? Yeah. Okay. Well, he, that's fantastic. Uh, to tell me about it. Well, I was I was at Home Depot, and um, <laughs> somebody had been calling my phone, but I didn't recognize the number, so I had just been denying it. When was this? This was probably two thousand eight. Okay. Uh huh. You know, I'm picking up compost or something for the yeah. house, and. Uh, I finally picked up, kind of like, what is this? Okay, what's going on? So I pick it up, and it's, hey, Sauten. And I just did not understand what he was saying. You thought um, it was somebody pranking you, maybe. Right, and I finally registered Elton. You're saying the name Elton. And he's like, it's Elton John. I, I just am calling because I really love your record. I want to just compliment you, basically, <laughs> that's, you know? That's, that's I, fantastic. Yeah, so that would have been Wincing the Night Away. And there's some... I was just going to say, that was yeah. right around Wincing the Night Away. Yeah, too. and so there was some... I think what he was referring to was Red Rabbits, which is a song that's kind of piano-based. Okay. Um, mm -hmm. And yeah. so he just, yeah, and I was blown away. Of course you were, yes. He's a beautiful guy. I, I've known him for a long time now because my first record, uh, way it is, Broken England first, and everyone mm -hmm. thought it was a B-side. Oh. A song about racism with two improvised piano solos is hardly the formula for <laughs> pop success. You know? Sure, yeah. Uh, but don't you theory. love it? The British will embrace something like that. Well, it just it was a lucky, a, a wonderful accident, a great fluke. The poor beleaguered, bewildered BMG rep in London took the record to his BBC Radio 1 disc jockey friend and said, hey, we like this record a lot, but we don't know what to do with it. It's kind of country. It's kind of jazzy. Mm. We don't know what to do with it. Just listen to it and see if there's anything in there for you. And he put it on over the weekend and picked this one song and put it on the radio, and boom, there it went. So that, that was just, uh, again, a, a wonderful accident that occurred. And so, consequently, now they're flying us over to England where we're making a video Unlike you, we've made some of the worst videos in the oh, MTV God. era. We, we, it's our, tough. Our, our, it, well, yeah, I, I wish I'd known you then. Maybe you could have helped me. Because oh, basically, we, our, our problem was, in the end, it wasn't a problem at the time, is we didn't take any of this seriously. We just thought it was all a big joke. So we just decided to use these videos as an excuse to get our mm -hmm. friends on TV. And so, Well, how did you perceive MTV at this time? What was it to you? You know, I was totally uninvolved. It wasn't, mm. There wasn't anything in there for me. I, I didn't yeah. get into this. I guess you could say I got into this for pure reasons. I was a pretty terrible pop star when that was happening for me. I just was pretty bad at it. And I was just uninterested. And, and, and because huh. I was just mostly, it was mostly about the music for me. Are, are, you, are you working for the movie world at this time? No, no. We've just made our first record and... And now we have to make videos because MTVs is mm. interested in playing them because of the, the, the radio success. Okay. We've been flown over there, uh, back to Elton. And so, uh, so now we're doing this, uh, they call them chat shows over there. I'm sure you know this. Oh, by the way, speaking of Europe, I, you and I were emailing each other last month, mm -hmm. about different, sending around different things, and I told you that I was going to be on Ezra Koenig's uh, show, Time Crisis, yeah. and you mentioned to me that you would work with them. So I mentioned it to Ezra, and he said, oh my God, that we opened for the Shins in Europe, and it was just a seminal moment. It was Aww, a, a moment hey. that we cherish to this day. It was so beautiful, and so uh, tell James... I'm paraphrasing this, of course, but that was the basic sentiment that we, he, he, they were all they were so grateful for that opportunity and just loved being around you guys. So, well, that's great. I'm yeah. chuffed, and we fell in love with their stuff. I'm a huge fan. 
Oh, yeah, he's a really cool dude, too. Totally is. Uh, And so we're we're playing this show, the chat show. It's called Terry Wogan. It was sort of the Johnny Carson Mm, of of England. You might remember the Wogan show. So I'm getting made up. Getting makeup. It was before I learned how to say no to things. So. <laughs> oh, they make you do it pretty much, you know? Well, they did until you, until you, yeah. you get to the point where you realize, you know, I, you're not my boss. No, mm-hmm. one, no, no one's my boss here. I'm going to do what I'm going to do. So, no, I don't care. You if almost I look, feel like you're insulting the, whatever, the cosmetologist or whatever, you know, oh, if you don't absolutely. take it. Oh, yeah. oh they, they, they stared daggers at me every yeah. time. But, uh, <laughs> But but anyway, I'm sitting there in the makeup chair, and all of a sudden, I hear this unmistakable voice coming down the hall toward me. Where's Bruce Hornsby? Where's Bruce Hornsby? Where is he? And I'm going, and because I didn't know that Elton was also on the show. He walks in wearing a big Tina Turner wig. <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah. As, as is his want. Yeah. And just threw his arms around me and just said, you know, I love you, darling, whatever. And uh, oh, That's awesome. He's so cool, man. He was. He's been a, such a supporter like that. I, I know several. I know Ben Folds mm. has that same story. Cool. Elton reaching out. He has a radio show that I didn't know about until last. Just last fall, he played a song from our last record, Absolute Zero, mm-hmm. a song called sure. "Never in This House" that he liked a lot. And uh, so it's just sort of laudatory remarks did abound, and I'm just sitting there going, "Oh my God, it's been all this time that I've known you, but it's still." crushes me in a beautiful way when I hear you say something so nice. So, yes, yeah, yeah. so you had that moment, and I've had that too. Yeah. And His confidence, you know, to just interrupt anyone he wants and just tell them, I love you. <laughs> and, you know, and he knows right. that we love him. He already knows. I think <laughs> he awesome. just assumes it, and he's, yeah. he's got to be virtually always, if not always, right. How cool to uh, be that guy and feel that way. <laughs> <laughs> All right, but we got off, which is fun. But, okay, so I'm, I'm still curious. Mm. All right, I'll, I'll kind of prod you with a what may be an apocryphal factoid that I have here. This story may may not be true, mm-hmm, but okay. uh, I heard somewhere the Shins mm. got their start sort of coming out of another band that was maybe put together in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Oh yeah, is that yes? Oh, okay, that's now, true. The band was Flake. Flake. Okay. Yeah, mm-hmm. and my dad was a munitions officer in the Air Force. That was his career. And is that why you moved around so much? That's why we moved around so much. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. So I went to high school in England because my dad was the head of munitions Mm. at third air force, which is the, that wing that covers the UK. And so that's kind of fantastic if you're interested in pop music. Yeah. You know, it's during the cold war in the thick of it. And he Mm -hmm. was, so you minute munitions, Includes nuclear weapons, so that was the big mm. thing. As he moved up in his career, it basically became oh. about nuclear weapons, oh, and okay. he got a job as basically like the principal of the inter-service nuclear weapons school, which is in Albuquerque. It's affiliated. Oh, okay, with the so Sandia you, you Labs moved from England to Albuquerque. Is that what you're saying? So we moved from England to Albuquerque, <laughs> and you know, and then <laughs> man, the thing that's cool about Albuquerque is a lot of stuff, but a lot of things to me. Yeah. It's neat. Yeah. Oh man. I love um, it. it. It's just so exotic, really. Now that yeah, I've, I agree, I agree. You know, it's like living across the country, and then you get to New Mexico, and it's like, whoa, this is very different. It's very unique. But one of the state. cool things, yeah, the whole state is very amazing. But uh, one of the cool things is like if you're a band, smaller band, and you're playing in El Paso, and you need to get to Phoenix, 
Albuquerque isn't necessarily a destination spot for you, but it's good gas money, you know? Well, it's got the college there too, which is maybe yes. a built-in audience for, uh, mm-hmm. for, for for young bands. Yeah, it's like 30,000 students, I think. Yeah, 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 UNM, right. So you get to open up for bands. You can, you know, they need a local act. And we were, I don't know even if the term indie, I guess indie was used to describe bands like that. But yeah, so we would open up for bands like Pavement and the Mises and these weird <laughs> uh-huh. little bands, you know. But How old were you then? That would have been like 23 that started happening. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, that was that was us. So, so you're you're opening up for these incredible sort of hard 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 punk bands, or yeah, hard a lot of them were bands, yeah. were pretty heavy. Albuquerque, the yeah. the scene there leans really heavy and dark. Oh, okay, um, but and we were not like that. That's why I think we would get gigs when other bands wouldn't, because the, you know the regular indie rock stuff isn't super metal ish. At that at that no. point, it wasn't. You know. But that was, yeah, that was Flake was the band, yeah. And Flake became the Shins? Uh, Yeah, basically. It's a weird little route that it takes, but for a while we were a two-piece. The Shins was a two-piece. I kind of was doing it on the side uh, of Flake. And then I got signed as the Shins and not Flake, and so then I needed to put a band together, and I was like, well, you guys just be in the Shins. (laughs) It's easy. Okay, so that made it... uh, I was going to ask if if that uh, there was some... Enmity created by that situation where you got the offer and they didn't and they were possibly going to be left out. Not really, because we had been writing songs together for Flake. This was just my project. It would have been subtle if there was really any enmity. Okay. It was was pretty good. So so you were writing songs, you were collaborating with Flake, Mm -hmm. but then you had your Shins thing, which was just you writing solo. Right, like I had had this Hewlett-Packard computer and a buddy of mine got a... Like he illegally downloaded a program called Cool Edit Pro and I put that on there and then I would just, I could get two tracks at a time in, you know, so I could do stereo keyboards in and stuff like that. And then I just started recording the stuff that we ended up publishing, like stuff for the first record. And so was it easy for you to get signed? Who signed you, Sub Pop? Uh, Sub Pop did. Um, yeah, fantastic. You know, it's, I, that is where I look back and I realize how important it is to tour as a small band uh, mm, beginning right. out because the yeah. people that I met, the other bands that I met, they're the ones who passed on my tape and oh. it ended up in the Seattle offices of Sub Pop and they liked it. And, you know, it's, it's somebody saying, hey, listen to this, I think. And that's what got us. So out. you were making fans uh, playing with other bands on the road. You, you mm-hmm. were making fans... Uh, yeah, of of that other band, and they would pass it along. Exactly, okay. you trade. You know, they'd give you yeah. one, and I just had no connection, so I couldn't help anybody. But they well, that's, were. Yeah, it was really Isaac Brock and a guy named Zeke Howard who both brought this tape into Sub Pop, and then they were like, "Oh, I guess maybe we should listen to this." I think. I also understand that you picked your name as an homage to George and Eulalie mm. Mc, uh, McKechnie Shin in the music yeah. band. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, Paul my Ford and Hermione him. Gingold, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. They, my dad loved that musical, yeah. and so it was just on often. Yeah. Same in our house. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. It was it's fantastic. So well done. Yes, one Grecian urn. Yeah, and the Beatles covered what was the song? Till there was you. Till there was you. Till, yeah, yes, you know, they did. which that was vouching for it to me. You know, <laughs> absolutely validation. Yeah. I was gonna. I was wondering. Now, the Beatles. When you saw them on the Ed Sullivan Show, were, did you 
perceive them as something new and different and kind of underground and edgy? Or was it just kind of like, oh, this is kind of like Elvis. Let's let's check it out. Or? Well, you got to remember, man, I was nine years old. So yeah. edgy and underground, they yeah. were not concepts <laughs> of which I was aware, you know? Okay, I, yeah, sure. I was just, I, I was just reacting visually, just emotionally. To, yeah, just feeling it exactly right. So I really didn't become aware of this sort of underground or, or indie idea really until the 80s when REM, REM's emergence made oh, me yeah. aware that, okay, that there was this whole, this whole, I guess, underground, for lack of a better mm-hmm. word, this, this whole under the mainstream radar screen area of music that was very creative mm-hmm. and and just and had a beautiful we don't give a shit attitude mm-hmm. about about sort of the showbiz aspects. You'd see, say, the publicity shot for REM, and it's just a just a bunch of guys standing in a field and yeah. in whatever they had on that day. You know, it wasn't yeah. anyone dressing. It was definitely not uh, taking their cue from, say, the British invasion where everyone had their little suit, you know? <laughs> it really is, and it's the signs that something is going to change. Some new aesthetic is... And and then yeah. I think what everybody says is that then Nirvana happened and everything shifted. The the focus of the whole industry, you know, from top to bottom, really changed. And like whatever this punk rock or indie rock thing is, is now yeah. hot. It's now mainstream. At a certain, yeah, certain, you know, yeah from, right. I guess maybe maybe from I'm saying not just now, but I guess from from Nirvana on. I guess would you yeah. say that's true? Yes. And, and so you guys came along then, oh, about ten years after that. Nirvana's 91. Didn't you guys come out about 2001, 2003? Yeah. Yeah, 2001 was our first release. So, yeah, I would say the Shins started doing these little shows as a two-piece in 96, 97. But that went on for quite a while before I did any recording. You drew your bandmates in from from Flake, and then that became the original Shins group. Yeah, exactly. Okay, yeah. And then all of a sudden... Zach Braff gets a hold of it, I take it. You know, it's funny because he, I don't know how he got a hold of it, but um, it was fairly early on. I think that it was in 2001 when I got a call from Sub Pop. I was in our tour van heading down the road somewhere in the Midwest. And uh, they said, we've got a film director and it's the guy from a TV show and he's doing a movie on the side and he wants to use, you know, new slang, I think is what... Yeah, new was slang, all right. he wanted yeah. off the bat. And so I just immediately said yes. There was no money involved or anything. And and then I forgot about it. And it wasn't, it was three years later, I think, that the movie came out. And then it was revealed, oh my God, Natalie Portman actually talks about the band yeah. in the movie. Natalie and, Portman anoints you, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was, so it was like, oh my God, this is... And things yeah. changed right away. When the movie came out, it was 2004. So 2003, we had been touring for our second record all year. And we were done. We had you know, just fulfilled the whole obligation, time to do another record. Yeah. And then the colleges started calling us, come play shows. And mm-hmm. so we, and you know how colleges pay pretty well. Yeah. Because it's not their money, kind of. Yeah. <laughs> so you became, instantly, you became college radio titans. Yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> we start, and then we were able to get a bus. So luxury, <laughs> so fine. You know? <laughs> yeah, that's great. Okay, well, you never know how it'll work, you know? Really, my, true. My BBC Radio 1 disc jockey is your uh, Garden State, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, there you go. You just it's, never know. How this will happen. And who knows, maybe the person who passed the music along to him was one of those bands that you guys were playing with in New Mexico. 
<laughs> yeah, very, very possible. <laughs> Those guys who you're trading tapes with. One of the things I, I was thinking about recently is just how strange it is to sit down at the piano for you and begin to write a song. And it's just totally wide open what might happen. I mean, it literally could totally transform your life, whatever you're working on at that moment, because you've seen it happen. Oh, yes, absolutely. And just, it's a weird little activity (laughs) to get into. Well, I'm always looking for the chills. Yeah, 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 uh, yeah. To get the goosebumps. Now, other times... Every now and then I'll try to write something you know, that's intended to be humorous. And so mm-hmm. I'm looking for a different emotion there. Yeah. I'm looking to see if I can make somebody laugh. I choked up listening to Absolute Zero. Oh, fantastic. The song, or the, re- the song or the, the record? Song. The song or the record? Oh, fantastic. That's one of my favorites. Look, it's, I, so it's not for everybody, but uh, that was one of the ones that came to me. I get chills thinking about that. So I'm, yeah. so, I'm so happy to hear you say that. We're, we're on similar wavelength uh, mm-hmm. musically, I think, because... I was writing the last two records, this new one, Not Secure Connection. I'm so happy to have you on it. Uh, and and Absolute, yeah. Absolute Zero. Uh, they started from film cues I'd written for Spike Lee. And so there was a certain okay. cinematic quality to them. And the first one I tried, I said, okay, I need to just sit down and try to marry some of these song ideas that I've had that i have been dutifully scrawling down in this notebook. I'm still a pen and paper guy. And... Uh, Based on a lot of the reading I do, uh, Don DeLillo. Are you familiar with Don DeLillo's work? I just, yes, I am, yeah. Gr- incredible writer. I just think he's just it. And so he wrote a book called Zero K. And uh, I'd, I'd had an idea about the title, Absolute Zero. Did you study like- chemistry at all? And to, to know about zero Kelvin is kind of interesting. That's right. M- minus 273 degrees yeah. Celsius. Yeah. Uh, is zero K. Uh, or, or maybe, God, I might have it wrong. No, I think you're right, yeah. It could be could be Fahrenheit minus two degrees, but I'll have to look it up. Yes, it's, it's true. Ter- I'm terrible to have written song and not be the main line is, "Hey, come on, let's go down to two seventy three below. Let's nice. go sliding down the scale, way down, down beyond the veil." Anyway, uh, Absolute Zero was the first song I wrote with the Spike Cues, mm. and okay. it just it just really sent me in a way I hadn't been sent by something that I had done in a while, and that led to the rest of it, which just continues to to lead me around this film music I wrote and trying, oh, but but our song, My Resolve, mm. was not written from a cue. It was written just as a song, and it sounds like it. It's it's just a song with chords, with a chord mm. progression. You yeah, know, it's not- Really cool chords. It's <laughs> not sort of really spacey and, and odd. But now and then I just like to write a semi-simple pop song, and I was writing this Writing, I had this Sisyphean idea, Sisyphean tale of a, mm-hmm. the ups and downs of the, of the creative life. And I thought to myself, I'd really like to sing this with somebody else and maybe a, a fellow creative climber. And I'd, I'd already copped the idea of this angular synth line, the mm-hmm. from your killer spilt needles, man. Oh, rad. It's, it's like I'm perched on the handlebars of a blind man's bike. <laughs> no straws to grab. Just the rushing wind on the rolling mind. I mean, forget it, man. That's so freaking uh, great. I'm just mad for it. So anyway, I stole. I, I wouldn't say that I stole what you did, but I. It just inspired me. This, this, I wanted to do this type of thing for this mm. this angular melodic line that goes through the song. And so I said, well, look, I've been influenced by this man. I've never met him. Let me reach out and see uh, see what could happen. And so. Now we're on the phone, and we did that song, and I'm so proud of it. 
and I'm so proud to have you on it. So thank you. I am so proud to hear you say that. I, I had no idea, and I, you certain, certainly wouldn't know it from the song. I'm chuffed, as they say. It's really cool. <laughs> well, thank you so much, and you know what? I think we've run over time. Oh, really? Hey, we're pretty good at this. And I had so much else I wanted to talk to you about, but uh, man, it just flew by. Yeah. And it's so great that you were able to do this. And man, I hope we get to play this live together in the same room sometime. That would be fun. That would be really an honor, man. Okay, well, for me too, James. And so, great, and go back to being a school teacher. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. Okay, great so talking much. to you, man. I'll talk to you soon. Okay, thanks. Bye. Bye. Bruce Hornsby, James Mercer, thank you so much for joining us here on the TalkHouse podcast. Listeners, if you came to this show through being a diehard deadhead, definitely check out TalkHouse and Macintosh's For the Love of Music series, where you can hear me in conversation with longtime Grateful Dead engineer and one of the architects of the wall of sound, Janet Furman. The band also came up in today's talk. You can check out our wonderful episode with Robbie Robertson and his golden messenger from earlier this year at TalkHouse.com. Our researcher and co-editor on this week's show was Samantha Small. Our producer extraordinaire is Mark Yoshizumi. And everyone that you've heard speak on today's show recorded themselves at their hashtag Stay Home Studios. The TalkHouse podcast theme was composed and performed by The Range. But not Bruce Hornsby's range, a totally different range. <laughs> Catch us on all socials at TalkHouse and make sure to subscribe to the show. We have some very cool pairings coming up. You ready for this, Josh? You I ready? Am. I am. Darren Aronofsky with Alejandro Hodorowski, Diplo with Charlie Crockett, Jeremy O'Harris, the playwright behind Slave Play with Perfume Genius, Paul Banks of Interpol with Shepard Ferry, and more. We're on fire over here. <laughs> that is a diverse slate of participants, Elia, I have to say. You know how we do it, man. Till next week, I'm Elia Einhorn. I'm Josh Modell. Peace. And Zach Braff. <laughs> there you go.